0: you turn in your Bibles this morning with me to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 10, our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 12, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. In this particular text, Jesus has left the area of Galilee and it crossed over the Jordan River to the area that is called the Beyond or Perea, beyond the Jordan, and he begins this section by teaching on the subject of divorce. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. The word of God reads, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea, And beyond the Jordan, crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. O God in heaven, we are grateful for your word, which proclaims to us truth. And Father, we pray once again that you would open the eyes of our heart, illumine our minds, grant to us understanding, especially on this sensitive subject. And grant to me, Father, your spirit, that I might divide your word accurately for your glory and your name's sake, we pray. Amen. This morning, we are going to be addressing a subject that is rather sensitive. It is on the subject of Jesus' teaching on divorce. In our day and age, divorce is very common, and I'm sure all of us know of someone, have been affected by perhaps even personally, the, th- the tragedy of divorce. Perhaps it's a good friend, perhaps it's our parents, perhaps maybe it may even have been you yourself who have been through a divorce. The statistics are rather staggering. Every 13 Seconds. Every 13 seconds, according to one article that I read, there is one divorce in America. There are nine divorces in the time that it takes for a couple to give their two-minute vows in marriage. Statistically, there are roughly almost two and a half million divorces per year in the United States. Those with the highest divorce rates in terms of their job or profession tend to be at the very top. Those who are involved with being dancers, bartenders, and massage therapists. Those with the lowest divorce rates are at the very lowest agricultural engineers, optometrists, and clergy. There is no real good divorce In an article that Elizabeth Marquet wrote and Patrick Cambert in the Chicago Tribune entitled, Wounds of Divorce Linger Long Past Childhood. The research brought about and challenged the idea of the myth of a good divorce. They concluded, we found that even young people who grew up in a so-called good divorce, one in which their divorced parents got along reasonably well, and stayed involved in their lives, still suffered negative effects. Two-thirds of kids from intact families went to a parent when they needed comfort, but only one-third of children of divorced families did that. They would more likely go to a friend or a sibling. Three times as many would say they love their mother but didn't respect her four times as many say they would love their father but don't respect him. In the research, our Kate summarizes the study as stating, quote, the idea of a good divorce is good for children is popular, but we found that while an amicable or quote-unquote good divorce, again, one in which the parents reasonably get along, is better then, of course, then a bad divorce, but it is inaccurate and misleading to describe the children's experience as good. In other words, some would say, well, we're going to get a divorce. It's going to be good for the kids because it's not good for us to stay together in the state that we're in. Divorce has had a devastating impact upon individuals, upon families, upon friends, divides families, has an impact upon children that is long-lasting. But before we look into the text itself, I want to underscore that the grace of God, even in divorce, is sufficient to uphold those who will look to him and trust. The grace of God is sufficient to forgive those who seek him. The grace of God is sufficient to help those who have been affected by divorce, whether it's you personally or those who are children. Because God's grace is sufficient God's power to uphold us for all who would come to Christ. Divorce ultimately comes from unresolved conflict. So the first question I want to answer this morning is, where does conflict in marriage come from? Where does conflict in marriage come from? And for that, we turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look into a number of passages here, so if you're turning your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 3, this is where conflict in marriage begins. It begins in Genesis chapter 3. The effect of the fall upon man. Adam and Eve, they sinned against God, and the effect of the curse upon them. Verse 16 In verse 16, it says, To the woman, he said, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The curses God turned to Eve would affect her two closest relationships, that of a relationship with her children, that of of her relationship with her husband. The latter half of verse 16, it says, Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Before sin entered into the world, both Adam and Eve had roles, had responsibilities. They were to tend the garden. Chapter 2 tells us that Eve was created to be Adam's helper. But because of the curse, there would now be conflict over those roles that they had. And that word desire there, your, your desire will be for your husband, does not refer to some type of romantic or sexual desire. That word only occurs once one other time in the book of Genesis, one other time in all of the Mosaic law, as found in the next chapter in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. What does this term mean? Yet your desire will be for your husband. If you look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God says to Cain, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. That is that same word, but you must master it. The meaning of that word, words are granted their meaning depending upon context. That meaning of that word implies that it was, it is temptation that desires to take over, to command, to control, to usurp. That is the meaning of that word, that just as sin was crouching at the door of Cain's heart, this was the effect upon the woman. Her desire for her husband would be one to control, to usurp, to, con- to take over or command. On the other hand, verse 16 also says in the book of Genesis, and he will rule over you. What does that word mean? That particular word means the idea of an oppressive. It communicates the idea of an oppressive, a despotic, a harsh rule. In other words, part of the curse that would be upon the man would not be that he would be some sort of considerate, thoughtful, godly servant leader. No, he would be a domineering, chauvinistic, oppressive leader would be his inclination because of sin. And so here is a part of the curse. Part of the curse would be upon the woman, and part of the curse would be upon the man, for the woman would be desirous to take over the leadership of the man, to control, to usurp, and his inclination because of sin would be to have a domineering, chauvinistic, oppressive type of leadership rather than a loving relationship of harmony within the family, and that is where marital conflict began. It began because of the curse, and it has been that way throughout all of human history. Not just in America, but even in biblical times, because of this conflict, there has been an entire graveyard of broken marriages and broken families that have ended in divorce. And that is the subject that Jesus addresses today. So let's look at the text in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, getting up, he went from there into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him, and according to his custom, he began to teach them. Verse 2, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, began to question whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Now, these Pharisees had been tracking Jesus for a long, long time. The religious leaders, they had wanted him dead. For a long, long time. They've wanted to kill him, but it wasn't that easy because even though Jesus began to teach more difficult things for the people to accept, even though some people who were disciples, as we saw in John chapter 6 verse 66, that they no longer followed him because of the toughness of his teaching, because of the difficulty of things that he was teaching, he was still a very, very popular teacher. Because he had gone around and continued to heal thousands of people. He continued to cast out demons. He continued to feed the masses, tens of thousands of people. He would teach as no other rabbi had taught. He continued to raise the dead, virtually eradicating disease from the nation of Israel. Unlike anyone else in their history, Jesus came on the scene. And he was still very popular, as we will see all the way up, even through the last week of his life. He is a very popular, popular figure. And so the religious leaders of that day, even though they hated him, they hated him so much, they wanted him dead, they wanted to discredit Jesus and entrap him in his own words. They wanted the people and the popular opinion to be turned against Jesus so that they could more easily Get rid of Jesus. So they waited for the right time, the right place, and the right question to ask of Jesus. And that little phrase, and beyond the Jordan, tells us a lot. Beyond the region that was the beyond was known as Perea. This begins what is known a short period of time, what is known as the Perean ministry. He crosses over the Jordan River. It's called the beyond or Perea, and his ministry is going to begin here, and he will travel south towards Jerusalem, by which he is going to then be crucified. What is significant about this particular region is that he is now crossed into a region that was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, of Herod Antipas. You might recall that Herod Antipas was the one who imprisoned John the Baptist and then had him decapitated. Why? Why? Because John the Baptist was calling out about the illegitimate marriage of Herod, Mark chapter 6. We looked at this a number of, a couple months ago perhaps, when Herod himself, verse 17, had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. Mark 6, 17, on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod Antipas had a brother named Philip, who was married to one of Herod's relatives, and that would be Herodias. He seduced Herodias. Herodias divorced her husband and got married to Herod. It was an incestuous relationship, and Herodias held a grudge against John the Baptist, who continually, continually called out and said, your marriage is illegitimate. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, and Herodias hatched a plot that during the birthday of Herod, as he was celebrating and his daughter danced before him, and eventually she requested, because he pleased, he was pleased, she requested that the head of John the Baptist would be given to her, and Herod killed him, had him killed. Now the Pharisees undoubtedly knew this all happened, and their thinking, I believe, was at this is a primary wonderful situation. If we can get Jesus to condemn divorce in a land where Herod ruled, well, maybe that might result in his imprisonment. That might result in his beheading like John the Baptist, problem taken care of. They already knew Jesus' is teaching on divorce and remarriage, In Matthew chapter 5, in the wonderful Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5.31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. They just wanted him to do it again and to teach again that same thing in the land where Herod Antipas was ruler in the region of Perea. So they came, verse 2, they came to Jesus testing him. They came to Jesus testing him and began to question him as to whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. They were testing him. They weren't there to find out what was the truth. They wanted to place him into a situation where he would perhaps indict himself before the people and lose credibility. And in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, it adds to that little phrase for any reason at all. Is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife for any reason at all? In their mind's eye, this was the right place the right question, and the right time to entrap the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at what they said in the Mosaic command in verses 3 and 4. Jesus answers masterfully here by pointing them to the word of God, to the Torah. What did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? And again, this was a wonderful way because it points them to interpret the word of God, or at least share what their belief was that it said. They answered, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now in the parallel passage in Matthew 19, they said to him a question, why did, then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Matthew 19:7. Now, the context of all of this in the history of uh, of the Jews is that divorce was rampant. A man could divorce his wife for pretty much anything, for pretty much anything. No judge was involved. No court was involved. A man simply had to write out a bill of divorce in his own hand, he had to have two witnesses, he had to date it, and he had to deliver it to his wife. And I've read that if he was mad and he threw it at her, that would be considered a delivery as well. The power of divorce within the Jewish system really was pretty much in the hands of the husband. And sometimes it was even encouraged. The most prominent rabbi of that time on this subject, his name was Rabbi Hillel. And men could divorce their wives for anything. They could divorce their wives for burning their dinner, for spinning around so that someone would see their ankles. They could divorce their wives for literally letting down their hair. If a man saw that his wife was speaking to another man, well, he could divorce her for that. He could divorce her for putting too much salt on his food. He could divorce her for talking badly about his mother, which was her mother-in-law. He could divorce her for talking so loud to her husband that the neighbors hear. He could divorce her because simply he found somebody else better. In fact, if a wife in those times were found to be infertile, he was obligated to divorce her. Even on apocryphal writings in a book called the Book of Ecclesiasticus, it's an apocryphal Jewish book of sayings. In chapter 25, verse 25, it says, Allow no outlet to water and no boldness of speech in an evil wife. If she does not go as you direct, separate her from yourself, unquote. In other words, there's an encouragement to divorce your wife if she simply did not follow what you wanted her to do. So divorce was commonplace. It was commonplace. and So the response was Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And they asked why Moses command that. See, the Pharisees were always looking for a loophole. They were always looking for a reason to justify what they did. And in this case, it was justification for divorce. And they took Moses' instruction, Moses' instruction as a permission to divorce their wives. And it was a misconstrual, a misapplication of what Moses had actually commanded For they took what Moses had said and turned it into a command. Let's look at what Moses says. If you turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Where this instruction is given. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, when you look at Deuteronomy 24, this is like what we call case law. Case law. It is a scenario. It is a description of something that happened. And what they did was they took a description of a circumstance and they turned it into a prescription for permission. I was reading the other day about uh, Washington State. Uh, They have a distracted driving law. And according to the Washington State Patrol in the state of Washington, if you are uh, driving along and you're uh, holding on to your cell phone, well that's illegal. They allow you to talk on the phone. If it's hands-free, like with a Bluetooth, and if you had to answer the phone, it's either by a tap or one swipe. That's okay. Or if you're out of the flow of traffic or parked. But if you do talk on the phone with your cell phone held in your hand, that is illegal. And you get a $136 ticket the first time, and within five years, it's $234. The second offense, within five years. That's a description of the law. Now, it would be misconstruing of me Misconstruing of the law, if I told you that holding on to and talking on a cell phone is perfectly acceptable and there's no charge unless you're seen by the police, then you've got to pay $136, but otherwise it's okay. No, it's not acceptable. It is against the law. It's not prescribing that I do something as long as the police don't see me. It's against the law. That would be misconstruing the law. And the very fact that there is a fine of $136 might be likened to a concession as opposed to the police officer taking that cell phone out of your hand, putting it on the ground, smashing with a hammer, and giving it back to you. Instead, he gives you a ticket the ticket is because this happens so very frequently. There's a concession, perhaps even a warning sometimes, but now it's a ticket. It happens so frequently. I remember I had a boss a long time ago. He was pulled over by a cop because he was talking on his cell phone. This is before the law was implicated, you know, instituted. He was talking on his cell phone with one hand. He was working on his computer with his other hand and driving with his knee. And the cop was so angry with him, he made him take all of that and put it in his trunk. The Pharisees had taken this instruction in Deuteronomy 24, this case law of what was described, and they turned it into a prescriptive permission to divorce for almost any reason. So let's look at that in chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now we'll stop right there. This is just a description. But out of this description, the most popular rabbinic tradition in Jesus' time as reflected in the Targum in the first century interpreted this verse as a command that God had commanded them God had commanded them to divorce. What does that word that they camped on mean? That word indecency. So here a man, he marries this woman. He finds no favor. He doesn't like her because there's some sort of indecency. That was the word they camped on. They camped on that word because that word in their mind's eye, included a whole plethora of things. Anything indecent. It could be spinning around and somebody seeing your ankles. It could be talking to another man. It could be anything like that. And that would be a circumstance, in their mind's eye, for divorce. It doesn't mean adultery. It doesn't mean adultery because there was already a law against that. What that word indecency means, we find in Deuteronomy 23, verses 13 and 14. The previous chapter, and I'll just share with you what that means, it has to do with a circumstance of personal hygiene, something that is shameful, something that is improper, but not adultery, something that was improper, And if it did mean adultery, for some reason, Leviticus 20, verse 10, tells us that if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, well, what's supposed to happen to him? He shall surely be put to death. There was a penalty for adultery at that time, and that penalty was death. So the woman here in chapter 24, verse 1, couldn't have been committing adultery. But what they did was they said, well, this word indecency means anything and everything underneath the sun. So let's read on. He takes this wife, he finds some indecency that he doesn't like about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house. Again, this is simply a description. There's no comment as to whether it's right or wrong. She leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife. Again, this is still a description. Verse 4 is where the command comes in. Then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For this, or that, is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin into the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So, What's happening here is husband number one marries this woman, and for some reason, he does not like her because of some indecency. So he divorces her, writes her a certificate of divorce. She goes and marries husband number two. He either dies or there's something he doesn't like and divorces her. She cannot return to her previous husband. That is the command. She cannot return to her previous husband. This is not a command that permits divorce. This is a command that is prohibiting remarriage. This is about remarriage. It is not about divorce. She cannot return to husband number one after she's married husband number two. It's a prohibition when remarriage, prohibition about remarriage when you've had a divorce because it wasn't adultery and she remarries. So the law was given as a concession. It was given as a concession to protect the women from being divorced by men, from doing this wife swap thing. I'm tired of her. Oh, no, I'll take her back. I'm going to do this. And all of these things, which was very rampant in those days. That's the context by which this was given. Verse 5. But Jesus said to them, They said, well, you know, this was what Moses commanded, which they were wrong. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because God knew. God knew divorce was simply going to happen. Because of the curse of sin, back in Genesis chapter 3, couples are not going to get along and divorce just happens in life. It doesn't make it right. It just happens because we are sinners. And a concession is built in because people's hearts were hardened. It is not encouraging divorce. It is not promoting divorce. And over time, what we see in the Old Testament was that God chose not to put to death all adulterers. He chose not to execute all adulterers as Leviticus 20 verse 10 would say And God, because he is the giver of law, has the prerogative to provide mitigation to that law because God made the law. And over time, as we see, no longer were adulterers being put to death. That doesn't make them any less guilty. It is a concession. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, though, that those who continue to do it won't inherit the kingdom of God. But for example, when David committed adultery against God and he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. It says in 2nd Samuel chapter 12 verse 13 when David was confronted, verse 13 of 2nd Samuel 12. Then David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die." It is an exercise of God's grace. God has the prerogative to provide that mitigation. Over time, we see that. Solomon, too. Solomon committed many adulteries, and God spared his life as well. God chose to exercise patience. He chose to spare the life of people who had committed adultery. God built into the law a concession. Why? Jesus says, because of the hardness of heart. Matthew 19, verse 8 says, Because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. What was it supposed to be from the beginning? Verse 6 tells us, But from the beginning of creation in Mark, God made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. For the two shall become one flesh, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Here Jesus outlines at least three reasons. Three reasons why divorce was never God's intention. First of all, it was never God's intention for divorce, because that's how it was from the very beginning. Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, God's plan for marriage. In God's original plan, divorce was never to be a part of that. There was Adam and Eve, and that's it. I mean, imagine if they had a divorce. There's no one else to marry to. That'd be the end of the human race. Never God's intention from the beginning. Secondly, divorce was never God's intention because God puts marriages together Marriage is a work of God, what therefore God has joined together. It is the hand of God that has placed marriages together, and the command is let no man separate. Thirdly, the joining of two as one is intended to be permanent. That word joined together means and can be translated from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it means that to cling to, to hold fast to, to glue together, to stick together. It means stuck. It's a very strong word in which there's a permanence that is communicated there. God's intention is that marriage is a lifelong commitment. Jesus is saying that God hates divorce because it was never intended from the beginning, it was intended to be perfect, and it is the work of God. So then, what does God think of divorce if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and we'll be looking at that chapter in another passage as well, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, what does God think of divorce? It is very, very simple. It says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, for I hate divorce. God hates divorce. That is what God thinks of divorce. He hates it. But at this point, someone might then ask, what defines a marriage? What defines a marriage? We've been talking a little bit about this in our adult Sunday school. What defines a marriage? There are two things that define a marriage in the Bible. As Jesus points out, marriage is between one man and and one woman. This is how it has been since the beginning. It is an institution that was created by God from the very beginning in Genesis 2.24. Secondly, there is a covenant made between the man and woman. Malachi 2, verse 14. Malachi 2, verse 14, just a few verses earlier. The Lord has been, it says, a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant by covenant that's why we call it the covenant of marriage marriage is a solemnized covenant that's why there are vows or promise or whatever it may be and whatever process there is. There is a promise or a vow, a covenant made. doesn't matter if they are two uh, non-Christians. It doesn't matter if they're walking with God or not. Marriage is between one man and one woman, and there is a covenant that is made. It may be verbal. It may be on paper. It may be a religious ceremony. It may be some sort of legal process. Whatever it is, there's some sort of covenant or agreement that is made between one man and one woman. And understanding that You have to make a covenant or vow is very important in the definition of marriage. We call it a marriage covenant or the covenant of marriage. This can be illustrated, for example, in a situation uh, uh, many years ago, about a decade ago. When I was in India, I was teaching in a seminary class. It was on biblical counseling. And after class one day, the the students come and they say, uh, we we have a problem. Uh, We need some advice. They're asking for advice on behalf of their friend. What happened was that their friend, and this is in India, where arranged marriages happen, they said their friend here is in an arranged marriage to a woman. On the wedding day, there is a ceremony, and presumably the ceremony is early in the day. There's a ceremony that happens. The ceremony is done, but before the marriage is consummated in the evening, the woman beats up the man. Now, I'm assuming she gave him a pretty good beating because he runs away. And furthermore, the man discovers that the woman was mentally retarded. After being beat up, he runs to his friends not wanting to be in this relationship anymore. He wants to know what are his options. Is he married? Is he unmarried? If he's married, what does he have an out out of this marriage? She badly beat him up. She's mentally retarded. The marriage has not been consummated yet, and this is an arranged marriage. So how does this all apply? Students ask, we need help. So as I mentioned now, when we look at marriage, the covenant made between one man and one woman. The fact that it was an arranged marriage doesn't give him an out. He can't say, "Why well, I didn't choose his wife. When you're in an arranged marriage, you have surrendered that wife, more than likely to your parents or whoever set up the marriage. It's just their fault. Bad vetting, you know? No returns. The fact that it was an arranged marriage doesn't give him an out. The fact that the marriage wasn't consummated isn't defining a marriage either. I mean, after the ceremony in the morning, he says, ah, you've got to go get the car and some tragedy happens, he dies, she's a widow. The fact that she beat him up isn't relevant either because the marriage isn't based upon how good or how badly they treat you. However, I said, the fact that she was mentally retarded is potentially a factor. Why? Because both parties need to understand and agree to this covenant that they are making to one another. So I asked the students just one question, after leading them through the logic of it, did she know, given her mental capacity, and understand what she was doing and what a marriage was? Apparently the students knew this lady. They looked at one another and they said yes. And they said, well, they're married. He doesn't have an out. Now practically speaking, in many circumstances like this, this is a wonderful opportunity for the church to step in to provide counseling, to provide shelter, sometimes to provide a brief respite for protection, sometimes to provide all sorts of provision. There are all sorts of ways that the church can minister to extend to them the help and the grace they need so that this marriage will be successful in the eyes of God. But they are married. Marriage is a covenant made between one man and one woman, and it is a covenant. No matter what society may say, no matter what the laws of the land may say, no matter what a culture may say, what matters, it was what God says in his word. And God says in his word that it is defined by a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. That is what a marriage is. Scriptures help us to define what reality is, what is true. So Jesus answers the Pharisees by reaffirming the intention of God, which is that marriage is to be a lifelong covenant and commitment between one man and one woman. Now the disciples, verse 10, begin scratching their heads because this is all very challenging to their whole system of thinking. It says in verse 10, In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, the disciples are thinking this through, and they're immersed in this culture. They're immersed in this culture when they can just simply write a certificate of divorce. You don't have any, have any court system. You don't have to have a judge. You just have to have two witnesses, date it, write uh, 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 the certificate of divorce, and, and, and give it to the woman, and, and she has to uh, leave. They were immersed in this kind of freewheeling type of divorce culture. And the disciples were questioning him, it says, and Mark doesn't record all of the conversation. This is how Mark writes. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. And Mark simply gets to the point. You'll find that a lot of his narrative, he just gives the bottom line of everything. Now, Matthew 19, Matthew 19, and Jesus responds to a question that they had. Matthew 19, verse 9, and he says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery, in Matthew 19.9. He had previously taught the same thing that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 5. He says in Matthew 5.31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In other words, this is what was said. But I say to you, he's clarifying the Mosaic Law, not changing it. He's clarifying because they had misinterpreted it. That everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now some would call these passages, it's well known that it's called these passages, the exception clause. The exception clause. When Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality or whoever divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity. Both of those words are the same. They're the same. They come from the word "pornea." Porneia. You probably recognize the form of that. It's pornographic. That's where we get that word from, I believe. And it means uh, this immorality and this unchastity, and that includes, by the way, adultery. Includes adultery. We find that in that list of adultery in Leviticus chapter 20 verses 10 all the way through 16. There are a number of things that they are grouped together that would help us to understand the category of what pornea is. And in that list, in the book of Leviticus, not only does it include adultery as the first thing on that list, but it includes incest, includes prostitution, includes homosexuality and bestiality, all sexual sins for which the Old Testament demanded as a penalty death. In other words, any of those corrupt and perverted sexual activities was a permissible ground for divorce. And they're all under this category of the meaning of the word porneia. All of them would be included behind this word. Incest, prostitution, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery. Now there's no conflict between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. As we've seen before in the Gospels, the inclusion of a clause by one author and not by another or vice versa is intentional for emphasis and I think Mark didn't include it, as I mentioned, because of his style. He just simply gets to the point, the bottom line of what Jesus was trying to communicate to them, that the original intention was no divorce. Don't look for loopholes. Don't look for the exceptions. But up to this point in time, if divorce does happen, as Matthew outlines for us, up to this point in time, divorce does happen, it must be then on the basis of what we find then, what Jesus says, That of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. That is the exception. Now some Christians take a view. There's a view that says, well, there's never to be any divorce and never to be any remarriage. There are no exceptions. Because some are very vigilant and the motive, I believe, is good, in which they're so sensitive and protective of the covenant of marriage, That they don't believe that there ever ought to be a case where divorce is permitted. But divorce is not only stated by Jesus with an exception here in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's illustrated by God himself. It's illustrated by God himself. You might recall in Israel's history, back in 930 BC, after King Saul, after King David, after King Solomon the nation of Israel divided into two. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was composed of ten tribes with wicked kings throughout its history. They turned against God. They committed what God would call spiritual adultery in her relationship with God. They had no kings, no kings from the Davidic line. And after hundreds of years of idolatry, by the northern ten tribes, God says this in Jeremiah chapter three, verse eight. He says in Jeremiah three: eight, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. God himself divorced Northern Israel on the basis of her idolatry, her adulterous, unfaithful relationship to him. Now the southern kingdom was more faithful, although not completely. His covenant, he kept with David. He did not divorce Judah. They had some good kings that led them back to God, some bad kings. He did not divorce them, but he would have a time of separation in which they would be exiled, but God would bring them back. God himself, even in that, uses this picture of their spiritual adultery and he writes them a writ of divorce. God himself would not use that illustration if it were not permitted in the case of adultery. He's a faithful and covenant-keeping God as he demonstrates the southern kingdom of Judah, but he divorced northern Israel because of their spiritual adultery. Another illustration of that would be also found of divorce on the basis of sexual immorality as illustrated in the New Testament. Christmas time is coming up and many of you recall the story of Joseph and Mary. The story of Joseph and Mary in Matthew chapter 1 it tells us that Joseph was betrothed to marry. They, were considered, they would be considered married at that point. It would be much stronger than what we would consider our engagement period. But in that betrothal period it was given, and that betrothal period would last a while, nine months, a year or so, in order that the young man who's going to marry this uh, young lady would be able to establish a home, be able to establish a trade by which he could support his wife, and also it was a testing period to see if that woman had been faithful well, as you very well know, the story is that Mary is found to be with child. And it says in Matthew 1, verse 18, she was with child by the Holy Spirit. But this is what it says about Joseph. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, he desired to put her away secretly. That's a nice way to say that he was going to secretly Divorce her. He was a righteous man. You know, had the assumption about her been correct, that she was pregnant by another man and therefore an adulteress, Joseph, who was just in this betrothal period, knew he had legitimate grounds for a divorce. The engagement was by a legal and binding contract, even though the union had not yet physically been consummated. And the context tells us that he was a righteous man. To Protect her reputation, he was going to do it secretly, but yet he was going to divorce her. The scriptures would not have called him a righteous man if the divorce of Mary was somehow unfavorable in the eyes of God or not permitted or a sin. So we see that divorce is permitted, not only stated by Jesus, but illustrated in the Old Testament by God himself, illustrated in the New Testament by Joseph and Mary on the grounds of sexual immorality. But is it always permitted in all sexual sin situations? In other words, a case where perhaps a wife is stuck in an undesirable marriage and she wants out, is it permitted for any and all sexual sin? She, she may try to set her husband up with illicit pictures or magazines or whatever it may be and catch him on film flipping through the pages and then say, aha, I've caught you. You know, lust of the heart is the same as adultery. Here's my papers. Sign them. No. Divorce must be against someone as Moses had instituted that concession on the basis of their hardness of heart. On the basis of the hardness of heart. The concession that Moses permitted was not given to divorce where someone has a repentant heart. Moses' concession was because people would not follow the biblical model of how it was from the very beginning because of their hardened heart. But someone who commits adultery or has some sort of relationship by which they return their spouse with genuine repentance and the genuine fruit of repentance, they are to be received back. But if they're not repentant and they proceed with their continual sexual immorality, then divorce may be an option, but never commanded nor required. And reconciliation and the pursuit of that restored relationship is always to be encouraged. You know the book of Hosea? It's a wonderful example of that. Hosea is a prophet of God. Hosea is a prophet of God. He is told to marry a wife named Gomer, and they have children. And as the story goes in the Old Testament, she takes off, and she becomes a prostitute. Now Hosea could have divorced her for adultery, but God instructs him, you go, you find her, you take her back into your family, and he looks for her, and he finds her, he finds that she has given herself up for sale and she he finds her in the public square on a block and what he does is he purchases her back he redeems her from that he takes her back and he treats her as a virgin bride and God uses that as a picture of himself and Ephraim a picture of grace a picture of forgiveness a picture of genuine love a picture of the pursuit of a restored relationship And that desire should always be the desire that reconciliation and restoration for the repentant would be there. But if divorce happens because of an unrepentant sexual sin, can a faithful spouse then be permitted to remarry? For example, if somebody takes off and... Desires not to repent, not to turn. They have a hardened heart, and there is a divorce proceeding that happens, and they are separated. Is the innocent spouse then allowed to remarry? And the answer would be yes. The answer would be yes. Why? If Leviticus 20, verse 10 were still being practiced, that adulterer would be put to death. And when he's put to death, she's free. She's free. She's no longer bound to any spouse. She's free to remarry. So in the case in which there is a biblical divorce, there is the availability of a biblical remarriage. An unbiblical divorce, divorce other than adultery up to this point in time in God's revelation results in more adultery, as Jesus states here in his instruction to the disciples. So divorce is not commanded. It's only because of one's hardened heart. If there is sexual sin, There's a genuine repentance upon the one who is the offender. There's no hardness of heart. There's no basis of divorce. They're to take them back. They're to work on a restored relationship. But divorce is permitted in the case of an unrelenting, unrepentant sexual sin. But then you say, well, I heard there's a second case in which divorce is allowed in the case of abandonment. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word which shines a light upon our sinful world and gives us a path out of the brokenness that we have all experienced. The brokenness of relationships, the brokenness of the effect of sin. But Father, we are grateful for your wonderful grace. That, Father, even though we have sinned so often against you, you have received us back. You have pursued us. You were the one who redeemed us from the bondage of our own sin. And you are a faithful God. So I pray, Father, may we be ever faithful. Strengthen the marriages that are here. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand what your word would say, that we might walk in obedience. And when we do, Lord, fill our hearts with peace and great joy for your glory and your name's sake. In his name we pray.